Hey everyone, welcome back. In this lecture, we will be covering existential therapy. Before we do so, let's take a mindful moment to gather ourselves before we jump into this material. In whichever activity or posture you find yourself in at this moment, take a pause, a moment to slow yourself down and become aware of your breathing, to become aware of your heart. Without judgment, just notice how your heart rate is. Is it nervous as your heart is racing or maybe you're exercising? Or is it calm? slow and steady. Notice also your thoughts. Are you stuck on one thought? Are your thoughts racing? Do you have a clear mind? Just notice. With those things now in your awareness, just accept their existence. as we're able to accept these things, we're able to move forward in peace. So take a few deep cleansing breaths. You might imagine yourself breathing in some acceptance. And as you exhale, letting go of the judgments that inevitably pop up when we think of these things. Breathing in our acceptance and our self-love and exhaling, releasing those judgments. Let go of those judgments, let go of the to-do list that you have, and let go of the things that you had to do before you got to this point today to let yourself be fully present as we jump into chapter six, looking at existential therapy. All right, so chapter six, existential therapy. The word existential means these really bigger things in life, things outside of our common everyday conscious awareness, things about like life and death and what happens when we die, and really more so looking at human existence at large rather than these little things that get in our way every day and might cause anxiety or depression. We're looking at this meta picture, this big human life existence picture. Existential therapy focuses on exploring themes such as morality, like life and death, meaning, freedom, responsibility, anxiety, and aloneness. Now, what makes existential therapy very different than what we've studied thus far is that it's not a theoretical orientation that has a lot of specific skills or mindsets associated with it. So with psychodynamic, we were really looking at attachment and the value of early childhood. Psychodynamic is this really deep dive into a person's individual story. And especially in Adlerian therapy, there were very specific skills that we use in exploring that, like encouragement and use of transference and countertransference and more psychodynamic approaches. Well, existential is a little bit different. It's more so opening up the conversation for these things, um, for these existential freedom, responsibility-oriented types of conversations. The concepts and themes have significant implications for the existentially-oriented practitioner. 
So if you're someone who tends to think more philosophically, who tends to think more so about these bigger life issues, um, then you might be a more existentially oriented therapist. The big premise here is that clients are shaping their own lives when they realize and accept circumstances and surrender control. Existential therapy is best described as a philosophical approach that influences a counselor's theoretic practice. So there's not really such a thing as a purist existential therapist. There's not enough in this theory that could really warrant that. This is more so a strong lens you bring into an integrated practice. This theory asks deep questions about the nature of human being and of anxiety, despair, grief, loneliness, isolation, and this feeling of anonymity. And it deals centrally with the questions of meaning, creativity, and love. So there are four common questions that are used in existential therapeutic thought. Why am I here? What do I want from life? What gives my life purpose? And where is the source of meaning for life for me in life? Where is the source of meaning for me in life? So these are questions that can come up in therapy using other modalities. The idea here is that these existential thoughts, these philosophical questions about human nature at large, really exist within all of us. And some of us are willing to go there. Some of us are willing to consider these things. Other people, when they come in for therapy, they may just want a set of solutions for everyday problems. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with wanting that. But sometimes we get clients and we may feel oriented in this way where we really want to get to the root of the problem. And sometimes that means going bigger than your three families' generations, like we would for a a genogram, which we'll get to when we talk about family systems. But we might open things up and go even deeper than that by exploring human nature at large. And this is existential therapy. So the way human nature is viewed in existential therapy is around the basic dimensions of the human condition, the capacity for self-awareness, concepts of freedom and responsibility, the creation of an identity and establishing meaningful relationships, the search for meaning, purpose, values, and goals. Anxiety is viewed as a condition of living, and awareness of death and non-being are also conditions of human non-existence. It's part of the spectrum that we exist on. We're all going to have anxiety. This is where the acceptance, freedom, and responsibility pieces can come in. And our awareness around this fact that anxiety is a condition of living. Uh, We have freedom, choice, and also responsibility in that. You may get more into existential type of questioning if you have a client who is going through some intense grief, especially around death and loss in that way. Uh, So awareness of our own mortality tends to come up. And this can be a time when people are really asking these questions. What is my purpose? What have I done with life? Why are any of us even here? Why did I have to go through this? Why did this loved one die? Why not me? So these bigger, deeper questions 
um, are really heavily associated with going through the grief process. We won't dive into the grief process and how to work with clients in the grief process in this course. You will get to that later in your studies. But these six elements that I've just mentioned, the basic dimensions of the human condition, they're referred to as prepositions. So let's look at each of these a little more closely. Preposition one is the capacity for self-awareness. The idea here is that the greater our awareness, the greater our possibilities for freedom. So if I am aware of what my options are, that gives me a sense of freedom, that I have a sense of choice and a sense of agency in my own life. Awareness is realizing that we are finite, which means time is limited. We have a day that we're born and we will all have a day when we'll die. And I can't remember which movie or which motivational speech it's from, but there's this reference to the dash. You know, in every person's timeline, it's like, for, so for my life, it would be 1990 dash, and then whatever year I will die would be the next part. So what are you going to do with that dash, that little line that represents the entirety of your existence on this planet? What are you going to do with your dash? So awareness is realizing that we are finite. Our time is limited. Awareness is also realizing that we have the choice to act or not to act. Even in the most extreme, most dire, most devastatingly fathomable circumstances, we have choices. We may not always feel like we have those choices, or we may feel like acting on one of those options isn't viable, that we can't really do that. But the truth is that the choice is still there. And this is where, in the beginning of this chapter in your textbook, in both editions, whether you have the ninth or the 10th, uh, this uh, it mentions a lot of different authors, a lot of different philosophers, especially from Eastern Europe. And one of the uh, philosophers that I really enjoy that's referenced is Viktor Frankl. And he wrote a wonderful book, a deeply stirring book called Man's Search for Meaning. And it was all about his journey through forgiveness as a survivor of Nazi concentration camps. And even in that situation, even in living in internment camps in Nazi Germany, there was decision. There was a sense of choice. You can choose to follow what your captors are telling you to do, or you can rebel and fight back. Even in that situation, and consequently on the other side, being released from ca captivity, you have a choice to live in anger and hatred, or you can choose to move towards forgiveness. Sometimes our choices seem impossible, but they are always there. Awareness is also realizing that we choose our actions. Meaning is not automatic. We must seek it. We are subject to loneliness, meaninglessness, emptiness, guilt, and isolation. And we are basically alone. So depending on how you might be theoretically oriented, and you may not have words for it yet because we're walking through that process, but if this feels a little cold to you, then maybe you are not quite so oriented in this way. And that's okay. You can take parts of this that seem to fit how you want to practice and use that to kind of fill in some spaces in your practice. 
Uh, but the idea that we are basically alone, for some people that feels really resonant. Yeah, we are basically alone. There really is a sense of every man for himself. Um, especially, I think, people who have been through trauma or devastating circumstances, uh, that's truly how things feel. So in this existential theory, the idea that we are basically alone, we have to assign meaning to things in our life. It's not going to be handed to us. We have to work to establish meaning in our lives. Preposition two, freedom and responsibility. We do not choose the circumstances into which we are born, but we create our own destiny through our choices. Freedom implies that we are responsible for our lives, for our actions, and for our failures to take action. Freedom and responsibility go hand in hand. Assuming responsibility is a basic condition for change. Take a moment to think on this, reflect, and see how it sits with you. Preposition three, striving for identity and relationship to others. So we determined a few moments ago that we are essentially alone in this existential theory. Human beings are essentially alone. Identity is the courage to be. We must trust ourselves to search within and find our own answers. Now that can take a lot of courage to be willing to look within to find your sense of identity. For some people, this is very appealing. For some people, this is terrifying and may feel impossible. But remember that now that you have the awareness around this, it also means you have choice and the freedom to choose to try and summon that courage to go within and find answers. And note that we're going within ourselves to find answers. We're not looking for it out in the world. We're going within to find our identity. We must trust ourselves to search within. Our great fear is not that we will discover that there is no core, no self, and no substance. That's what a lot of people run into is that what if I look inside and I don't like what I find? Or I can't find anything? Or the only things I can find seem really ugly? Using Viktor Frankl as an example again, what if he, in his internal searching, found that he truly, passionately hated German people because of what German people had done to him? And it can get really easy to get stuck there. Well, of course it makes sense. It makes sense that you would feel that way towards them after everything they did to you, to your people. So it can be scary because if this fear that something very different than who we want to be is what's truly inside of us, then we have to confront it because once we know, we have a responsibility for it. As startling as this feeling of aloneness can be, in existential therapy, we're theorizing that it's also essential to be alone, and that fear of loneliness is a critical part of the journey into discovering the authentic self. We derive strength from the experience of looking to ourselves and sensing our separation. The sense of isolation comes when we recognize that we cannot depend on anyone else for our own confirmation, 
We alone must give a sense of meaning to life. And when we're alone, we must decide how we will live. If we're unable to tolerate ourselves when we're alone, how can we expect anyone else to be enriched by our company? Before we can have any solid relationship with another, we must have a relationship with ourselves. So as startling as the language around this might be that we have to be alone, when we break it down, this is the same theory that we hear often in other modalities of therapy, in advice giving with our friends and our aunts and our parents, that you have to love yourself before you can love someone else. That is, you have to fully accept who you are as a person in order for you to find meaning in other aspects of your life or to find meaning in relationships. So if you have a client who comes in and they're just struggling that they cannot connect with another person in an intimate and meaningful way, well, what's going on in your relationship with yourself? Can you love yourself? Can you accept who you are? These are existential type questions. Continuing on in preposition three, our striving for identity and relationship to rooms. We balance aloneness and relatedness. This balance helps us develop a unique identity to live authentically in the moment. So here's a novel piece, whereas with Adlerian and more psychodynamic, psychoanalytic approaches, we were all about the past, what's happened to you, past tense. Existential, and some other theories we'll discover moving forward, all about what's happening now, what's happening today in this moment. At their best, our relationships are based on our desire for fulfillment, not based on deprivation. What does that look like? So we depend on relationships to survive. Again, that idea of Ubuntu theology coming in here. I cannot be me without you. We would depend on relationships for our others. And we want to be significant in someone else's world. We want to feel that someone else's presence is important in our world. We want to be able to stand alone and tap into our own strength, but we also want our relationships to be there to back us up when we need it. But if we feel personally deprived, we can expect not a whole lot. We can expect little but a clinging and symbiotic relationship with someone else. More like a roommate that you get along with really well. You function around each other's schedules nicely. You can talk through some little arguments that you have. But there's not a lot of emotional or intimate connections there. So perhaps one of the functions of existential therapy can be to help clients distinguish between having a dependent attachment to another person versus having a life-affirming relationship in which both people are enhanced. The first, the dependent attachment, is more like being codependent, reliant on people for your needs to be filled through them. Rather than being okay with who you are as a person, you're constantly seeking fulfillment from others, maybe on social media, or maybe uh, going out with your friends a lot, constantly asking other people what they think about what you're doing, rather than telling them how you feel about what you're doing. In the second, a life-affirming relationship, both people are enhanced by the experience. Rather than me pouring into you and constantly telling you that you're doing fine or you're doing a good job, 
we can have a reciprocal relationship where you can tell me about your life, I can tell you about mine, and we build each other up. We fuel each other. So the therapist can challenge clients to examine what they get from their relationships, how they avoid intimate contact, which they're inevitably doing. They're self-sabotaging without realizing it. So this is where us reflecting and saying, huh, did you realize this is happening? What do you think about this? Helping them pick up on those clues where they're avoiding intimate contact. How are they preventing themselves from having equal relationships? And how can they create healthy, mature human relationships? Existential therapists speak of intersubjectivity, which is the fear of our interrelatedness with others and the need for us to struggle with this in a creative way. Preposition four, the search for meaning. This is a distinctly human characteristic, the struggle for a sense of significance and purpose in life. If you're an animal lover or a pet owner, your cat or dog does not really look for a sense of significance and purpose in life. They very much enjoy the relationship they have with you, but they're not really looking for that career win that's going to help them feel fulfilled or to go on that bucket list vacation that's going to give them some sense of accolade or some sense of achievement. It's a distinctly human thing that we need and want to assign significance and meaning to our lives. Logotherapy is designed to help clients find meaning in life. Rather than telling clients what meaning in their life there is, we assist our clients to figure it out for themselves by examining the past, future, and present meanings. Our goal is to help clients identify and connect or reconnect with potential sources of meaning in their lives. Remember that as much as we can, we want things to be our client's own idea. Our job as therapists and counselors is to guide them along the way of finding what works for them, what can come from them. That's where we see the most effective and most long-lasting change is when it's a client's idea rather than us telling them, this is how you're supposed to do this. We want to avoid supposed to and should. So anytime we can help our clients kind of figure this out on their own and where meaning is for them, that's therapeutic gold. So in logotherapy, we're helping clients find meaning helping them explore their own past, present, and future senses of meaning in order to gain a new understanding and connect or reconnect with areas of their life that can be a source for this meaning. So the suggestion is that human suffering for the tragic, the negative aspects of life can be turned into human achievement by the stand that clients take when faced with it. Again, the work of Viktor Frankl here contends that people who confront pain, guilt, despair, and death can effectively deal with the despair and thus triumph. The tricky thing with looking for meaning is the more often we look for it, the harder we strive to find it, the more elusive it seems to be. Meaning is created out of an individual's engagement with what they value and what the commitment provides the purpose that life makes it worthwhile. 
the commitment to searching for meaning is what makes the meaning and the process worthwhile. The absence of meaning, or when we feel a sense of meaninglessness in our life, can lead to a sense of emptiness or hollowness. This is at times referred to as an existential vacuum. This is getting in this getting stuck in the place of nothing is ever gonna change. My life has no value, my voice has no meaning. What's it all for? Does this sound like depression? I hope it's kind of ringing that bell. That when we're in this existential vacuum, this place of nothing matters, this is really depression that we're describing here. We tend to think of depression as being sad, being really sad all the time. But depression can be a lot sneakier than that. And depression oftentimes has very real roots to it. And this is oftentimes what it sounds like. My life has no meaning. I have no value. What do I even contribute to my family, to my work, to my community? That lack of meaning can lead us to a very dark space. And the words hollow and empty are often used to describe it. What's important to remember with meaning is that it can change. And this is where that logotherapy piece comes in. We're looking for meaning today. What was meaningful yesterday may not be meaningful to you today. And there's a quote in your textbook from Von Tress. What provides meaning one day may not provide meaning the next. And what has been meaningful to a person throughout life may be meaningless when a person is on his or her deathbed. And I'd expand that to say, or when they're going through a crisis, when they're going through loss or grief, that it can really shake the existential foundation that you used to be on when you are faced with something that is so radical and transitional in your life. So maybe your work was really meaningful to you until your partner died of cancer. And now you're wondering, why did I spend all that time at work? Why didn't I spend more time with my partner? This doesn't matter to me anymore. That sense of meaningfulness has shifted. Preposition five, anxiety as a condition of living. Oh my goodness. Preposition 5. Anxiety as a Condition of Living Yalom's four givens of existence create anxiety. There are things that are just going to happen that create anxiety. And there's normal anxiety and neurotic anxiety. Anxiety arises from our personal striving to survive and maintain and assert... assert oh my goodness... <laughs> Anxiety arises from our personal striving to survive and to maintain and assert our being. And the feelings anxiety generates are an inevitable aspect of the human condition. So rather than viewing anxiety as an illness, anxiety is a normal. It's something that's going to happen. And truthfully, it's supposed to happen. 
Existential anxiety is the unavoidable result of being confronted with the givens of existence. Death, freedom, choice, isolation, and meaninglessness. Existential anxiety arises as we recognize the realities of our mortality, our confrontation with pain, and our need to struggle for survival, as well as our basic fallibility. We experience this anxiety as we become increasingly aware of our freedom and the consequences of accepting or rejecting that freedom. No matter what we do, there's a consequence. And sometimes it's a good consequence. Sometimes it's a bad consequence. Sometimes there's more than one option and all of the consequences are bad. And you have to choose the lesser of so many evils. We tend to use this phrase around election time. Who did you vote for? Oh, I voted for so-and-so. He was kind of a terrible candidate, wasn't he? Well, he seemed to be the lesser of two evils. When you only have limited options and all of the options seem pretty poor, that can create existential anxiety. We differentiate between normal and neurotic anxiety. And existential therapists see anxiety as a potential source for growth. In a biological sense, anxiety gives us the motivation that we need to do things. If we weren't anxious about deadlines or advancing our career or paying our rent or getting groceries, making sure our kids are actually learning something, then we would just kind of lay around and not do anything. Anxiety is that little kick in the pants that makes us do things. And there are different types of anxiety. So existential, which we've covered, which can be a source of growth, and normal anxiety. It's an appropriate response to an event being faced. Your rent is coming up, your bank account's a little lower than you'd like. Of course you're stressed out about that. You have some anxiety. This is normal. From an existential perspective, accepting freedom and the responsibility for making decisions and life choices, searching for meaning, and facing mortality are frightening. But this kind of anxiety does not have to be repressed. It can be a powerful, motivational force towards change and growth. Failure to move through our normal anxiety results in neurotic anxiety. That's anxiety about concrete things that's out of proportion to the situation. So that's having plenty of money in your bank account to pay for rent, but having a panic attack because you didn't achieve a certain savings goal that you were looking towards. The response is a little out of proportion to the situation. From an existential perspective, neurotic anxiety is typically out of awareness, and it tends to immobilize the person. When we're in a neurotically anxious place, we tend to be kind of paralyzed. Oftentimes, people come to our office wanting to eliminate anxiety. They want the bad feelings to go away. And on the surface, who doesn't? We're taught and we're trained that we want to feel good, that we want to be happy. But the truth is, perhaps, that maybe we're not meant to be constantly happy. There's another emotion, content. And it's okay to be okay. It's okay to be content. 
But we've been trained to believe that we need to constantly be happy. So when we're anything other than happy, we're anxious or depressed. And we seek help for making those bad feelings go away so we can get back to being happy. Existential therapy suggests that that anxiety you're feeling, it's totally normal. And not just because everybody else is feeling it, but because we're made to feel this way. That's how human existence is. We need to be anxious about some things. Now, that neurotic anxiety that you're feeling, that stuff that's out of proportion to the situation, yeah, let's get into that. Let's look at why you're having this response. And let's see what's under the surface here. Existential therapists can help clients recognize that learning how to tolerate ambiguity and uncertainty and how to live without props can be a necessary phase in the journey from dependence to autonomy to independence. The therapist and client explore the possibility that although breaking away from the crippling patterns and building new ways of living will be difficult and fraught with anxiety for a while, Over time, the anxiety will diminish as the client experiences more satisfaction, content with newer ways of being. So the tricky thing about treating anxiety from an existential perspective is that it will get worse before it gets better. In order for you to learn how to be an autonomous person, you're going to have to go through some growing pains, so to speak. And anxiety is embedded in those growing pains. So to get rid of the neurotic anxiety and kind of back into normal anxiety, we're going to make you a little anxious along the way. But I'm going to be here with you. We're going to do it together. One of the cautions around our experience of anxiety is that we often try to mute the experience um, where we try to make it like we try to blunt it. Uh, try to lessen the impact of the anxious experience by creating the illusion of security. And this can be, ironically enough, an anxiety-inducing conversation around the realities of security. Uh, People who might be kind of like me have a five-year color-coded Excel spreadsheet, the five-year plan for my life, and realizing it's probably not going to go that way. And just because I have it typed up on a spreadsheet doesn't mean it's going to make anything happen. The future is equally uncertain now as it was before the spreadsheet existed. Security isn't secure. It's this nice idea that we have, but in existential terms, we don't have a lot of security. Uh, Benjamin Franklin said that the only things guaranteed our life in life are death and taxes. So the realization that there is no security in the feeling of security is an anxiety-producing one, realizing that there's nothing I can do to make the future less uncertain. I think especially as we're living in these unique times with uh, frequent natural disasters, a, a global pandemic as we're facing coronavirus, these are things that are really prompting existential thought and exploration in many of us, and the realization that our 5, 10, 15-year plan, it just got thrown out the window. Um, Even though we had spent all this time preparing, we put our blood, sweat, and tears, our life's work was into making a better future for my family or for my kids, and it's gone. That can be very difficult, 
And part of what we do in existential therapy is say, yes, like that, it's hard and it's terrible that this plan of yours fell apart and that you're feeling this way. And moving forward, maybe there's a sense of acceptance that can come from this, that the future is going to be what it's going to be and move forward with wisdom, but also with acceptance that you can't control the future, that there really isn't a sense of security. And truthfully, your anxiety will decrease with this acceptance rather than trying to start from scratch and make a new plan and rebuild like the family nest egg. Uh, you know, that's a very neurotic anxiety response. Whereas acceptance of what is and what can be can help us stay in a place of normal anxiety. Moving forward now to preposition six, awareness of death and non-being. Death gives significance to living. It's necessary to think about death if we are to think significantly about life. Very philosophical mindset here that the way our life has meaning is the fact that it's time limited. The fact that we're not going to be here forever. We're not going to see and experience everything. And even though we have a certain amount of time here on this earth, there's also a certain amount of time within our time on earth in which we can accomplish certain things just based on age and capacity. So the fact that we will eventually die is what gives meaning to our current life here on this planet. And this is where religion and spirituality can be brought in as well. What do you believe? What does the client believe about what happens when we die? Do they believe in an afterlife or you know, what is their system of belief? Or is it just once you die, that's it? There's nothing more. So if you have a person or if you are a person who believes that the things you do lead to a certain quality of life after death, that's going to change the way that you view meaning. And it's going to change what's significant to you here and now. And if you're a person who believes that once you die, you become compost for the earth and nothing really happens to you, then that's also going to change what you view to be significant and what has meaning for you in your life. So death and non-being are an essential part of understanding what life is. Our awareness of death is the source of zest for life and creativity. So this realization of our mortality can be a very morbid one. It can be a very sombering one, um, but it can also be one that gives us that motivation, that normal anxiety, or maybe even existential anxiety to do something, to make changes, or to be innovative with the time that we have. We can turn our fear of death into a positive force when we accept the reality of our mortality. When we live in fear of death, when we live in this place of, we can't even talk about it, or even if you have a pet goldfish that dies, and that's triggering. When we're so fearful of death, that's what leads to having this highly anxious experience. And that is what ends up muting our creativity and really decreasing the quality of our significant experience in our life here and now. When we're able to accept that death is part of our experience, it is part of every living 
things experience, then we can embrace the life that we have here and now. The fear of death can be a positive force when we accept the reality of our humanness, of our mortality. So what does this look like as a therapeutic process? How do we use this in the office if it's such a philosophical orientation rather than like a skills-oriented one where a client says something and then I say this, or I can use the miracle question to try and explore this topic? Well, existential therapy is not really like that. So what are the goals that we have in therapy? We want to assist clients in moving toward authenticity and learning to recognize when they are deceiving themselves. A lot of people are in denial about their anxious fear of death, as an example. Um, There's this kind of cognitive awareness, like, yes, everything dies. I know that. I don't need to talk about it anymore. Well, maybe you do. What's preventing you from talking about death? Why are you so aversive to talking about this? So highlighting for them, you know, I think you might be experiencing some real anxiety around this. Why is that? And from an existential perspective, can we move you into acceptance around it so you can get back to normal anxiety? I love that phrase. Let's get back to normal anxiety. It feels very comforting. Another therapeutic goal is to help clients face anxiety and engage it in action that is based on creating a worthy existence. And again, phenomenological perspective here. What is a worthy existence in the client's perspective? You may think like this person is totally capable of achieving this and doing this and they can do all these things. And that's not what they want. That's not what's significant or meaningful to them. So face client's anxiety, engage it in action. Use that energy to create an existence that they feel is worthy and that they can get on board with. Another goal is to help clients reclaim and reown their lives, teaching them to listen to what they already know about themselves. We don't have to reinvent the wheel every time we get a new client in therapy. A lot of times the answers are already locked in our clients. We just have to help them figure out where the keys are to unlock the answers. So reclaim and reown your life. Don't let existential fear and anxiety hijack you. Listen to what you already know. You have innate internal wisdom. Listen to it. We also want to help our clients uh, identify these four aims of therapy. What's that we want to do? So to recap these three goals of therapy from an existential perspective, assist clients in moving forward with authenticity, learn to recognize when they're deceiving themselves, help them face their anxiety, engage that anxiety in action that is based on creating a worthy existence, and help clients reclaim and reown their lives, teaching them to listen to what they already know about themselves. Now, Schneider and Krug recommend um, some other therapeutic goals, identifying four aims of therapy to help clients become more present to themselves and to others, living in the here and now, to assist clients in identifying ways they block themselves from fuller presence, to challenge clients to assume responsibility for designing their present lives, and to encourage clients to choose more expanded ways of being in their daily lives. 
So building your tolerance for living here and now, identifying barriers to achieving that, to help our clients assume responsibility for how their lives are and where they can take agency in their lives to make it better or make it more worthy of their time. And to encourage them to choose more expanded ways of being. There's more than just what's in front of you. So what's the relationship between the therapist and the client like? Therapy is a journey taken by both the therapist and the client. The person-to-person relationship is key, and it demands that the therapist be in contact with their own phenomenological world. The core of the therapeutic relationship is respect and faith in the client's potential to cope. We have to believe in them and sharing our reactions with genuine concern and empathy. Therapy is viewed as a social microcosm in the sense that the interpersonal and existential problems of the client will become apparent in the here and now of the therapy relationship. It's like a safe little container representative of the world at large. So the things that exist outside of the office still exist here in the office, but I'm with a safe person. I'm in a safe place to talk about it and explore it. One of the key terms you'll hear in the existential therapy perspective is the I-thou relationship. Thou is T-H-O-U, that old English word um, representing you. So the I-U relationship. But the I-thou relationship is significant in existential therapy. Uh, Buber's understanding of the self is based on two fundamental relationships, the I-it and the I-thou. The I-it is the relation to time and space, which is necessary um, as a starting place. Remember that our life has meaning in the here and now because there will eventually no longer be a here and now from our perspective. So that's our essential starting place, the I-it, our relationship to time and space. The I-thou is the relationship essential for connecting the self to the spirit and in so doing, achieving true dialogue. The form of this relationship is the paradigm of the fully human self, the achievement of which is the goal of existential philosophy in Buber's perspective. Relating to our clients in an I-thou fashion means that there is direct, mutual, and present interaction. Rather than prioritizing therapeutic objectivity in profound distance, existential therapists strive to create caring and intimate relationships with clients. This is much more us joining in with the clients on their journey rather than us being the professional and kind of showing them the way. Um, A psychoanalytic person might uh, share their own insights about a person's experience. Well, I think this is what that dream means. I think this is what this experience is trying to tell you. That's not how we roll in existential therapy. We're really along for the journey. This is where being with a therapist can feel more like being at a coffee shop with a friend, just talking about things in a contained and safe space. But what we're bringing to the table is that really in-the-moment, caring, and honest perspective. So as has been stated before, existential psychotherapy is not technique-oriented. It's much more a philosophy or a kind of mindset that you adopt when you're in working with your clients. 
Techniques from other models can be used within the context of striving to understand the subjective world of the client, but they must be used in an integrated fashion. So this isn't really news. We've been talking about how we integrate things and which theories integrate well so far. And existential therapy is definitely one that we integrate with others. When the deepest self of the therapist meets the deepest part of the client, the counseling process is at its best. So this is why there's a lot of value on being very genuine and authentic with concern and empathy and having a very non-power dynamic oriented approach. Um, We're really looking for that deep kind of connection over these existential issues and existential thoughts. So the phases of existential therapy. The initial phase, or in the beginning, clients are assisted in identifying and clarifying their assumptions about the world. In the middle phase, clients are assisted in more fully examining the source and authority of their present value system. Why do you believe this? Where did it come from? Do you still agree with that? In the final phase, clients are assisted in translating what they have learned about themselves into action, using that anxiety for change. So this provides an ideal environment for therapeutic work on responsibility. This is a great application for group counseling. Clients are responsible for their behavior in group. If you say something or fail to say something or behave in a certain way, you get called out on it, whether it's by another group member or a facilitator, depending on the nature of the group. But groups are great for that immediate feedback system, and existential therapy can lend nicely into this. Group settings provide a mirror of how clients may act in the world. And through feedback, members learn to view themselves through another's eyes and how their behavior affects others. It also builds interpersonal skills, creating opportunities to relate to others in meaningful and authentic ways. So if you're practicing interrelationship skills and a person keeps kind of staying on superficial topics, the facilitator or maybe someone else in the group could point out, I feel like you're resisting going into this deeper conversation with me. Or I feel you resisting a connection with me. What's that about? So the therapeutic relationship in a one-on-one setting can provide this. It also provides this in a group. Uh, And sometimes in a group, it can be a little more organic or feel less intimidating, depending on the client and the group, too. Uh, So groups can be really great for this. It's also a great opportunity for um, exploring paradoxes of existence. How two things totally at odds with each other exist at the same time. And group can also reduce the avoidance of universal existential concerns because not addressing these themes diminishes one's engagement with life and one's engagement with the group. So what does existential therapy offer from a diversity perspective? Some strengths here. It does not dictate a particular way of viewing or relating to reality. It has a focus on universality and on the human experiences that transcend the boundaries that separate cultures. It also considers the degree to which behavior is influenced by social and cultural conditioning. 
Some shortcomings from a diversity perspective. This approach can be excessively individualistic and insensitive to social factors that cause human problems, but we are seeing this really starting to change. Social injustices may lead clients to feel patronized or misunderstood if the therapist too quickly conveys that they have choice in improving their lives. So if someone, let's say a person of color has come to your office, especially if you are not a person of color as the practitioner, you start telling them that if they just work harder or if they use this program or maybe they can rely on this family member for support or you try to do some problem-solving strategies that completely ignore the larger social aspects that are uh, influencing and potentially oppressing this person, that's a great disservice that we're doing. Um, So the idea that we have freedom and choice is a real one, and I think it's a good one, but it can also realistically be hindered by social structures that are in place. And especially folks from the dominant culture, such as myself, have a tendency to forget about this because it's not in our conscious awareness, which is part of the problem. Uh, So when we too quickly jump to like, well, where do you have choice and agency in your life? That can be really diminishing for a person of color, especially who has been oppressed by societal factors. And another shortcoming from a diversity perspective, some clients may prefer more concrete direction. An existential approach and a really strong existential approach can be too open, so to speak. It can leave things too open um, and it doesn't quickly solve problems or it doesn't even slowly really solve problems. It's a little bit in the same way of psychoanalysis where this idea of uncovering the self is the key to healing. That's a great and beautiful thought, but if I'm having really profound anxiety or my insurance has only authorized eight sessions this isn't really going to work for me. Some contributions of the existential approach. Existentialists have contributed a new dimension of understanding of anxiety, guilt, loneliness, and alienation. The reality that these are aspects of the human experience is hugely fundamental in eliminating the pathology of anxiety and the pathology of loneliness. We're going to feel anxious. We're going to feel lonely at points in our life. And that doesn't automatically mean that you have anxiety or you have depression. It means you're feeling something. And it's okay to feel these things. It's okay to have what are called negative emotions. Even that label doesn't make them seem all that welcoming. But this is part of the human experience. And that was a big offering of existential theory. Its emphasis on the human quality of the therapeutic relationship as a strength is another major contribution, Um, especially with more modern therapies. We always talk about how the relationship is key. That's now one of the basic tenets of counseling and psychotherapy. It all comes down to relationship. It wasn't always that way. That wasn't always how we saw things. So as we're kind of moving through the history of psychotherapy here, you're seeing this become a stronger theme relationship and the human quality of that relationship really matters. The key concepts of the existential approach can be integrated into most therapeutic schools. Almost everyone has at least a pinch of existential theory in their integrated theory pot of stew, you could say. Uh, So I, I don't think I've ever met a therapist that wasn't willing to go into these deeper 
conversations. It's something that, because it's such a part of the human experience, I think we all have a pinch of this in our practice. Some limitations of the existential approach include that the focus doesn't always fit within the worldviews of clients from collectivistic cultures. As we stated before, it is a fairly individualistically minded theory, so it, it is limited in that way. Some practitioners may view existential concepts as lofty and elusive or even kind of pointless. Um, while I think we all have a pinch of existential philosophy in us, because we're humans, there are some practitioners who, especially in their work, in their therapeutic practice, view looking at these questions and examining these things as a giant waste of time. Isn't it more effective if I just teach you some coping skills so that your anxiety can get better today rather than waiting weeks or months for you to have some epiphany about the existence of the world to decrease your anxiety? Another limitation or criticism is the focus of self-determination. This may not fully account for real-life limitations for people who are oppressed and have limited choices. So the idea that we have freedom and choice, maybe it's just a nice idea. For some of us who experience societal oppression, maybe because of our sex, maybe because of the color of our skin, maybe because of our physical health and ability or disability, choice can be a bit of a trigger, actually, saying that I have a choice in some of these things. Well, what if I really, truly, honestly don't? Some clients do prefer a more directive approach to counseling, as we've addressed, and some practitioners may lack the level of maturity, life experience, and intensive training required to be effective. I think there's also a perception that if you're a younger practitioner that you can't possibly have the wisdom, the maturity, the experience to be able to use this modality effectively. I would contest that, uh, but I think there is that perception out there. And finally, this approach does not focus on specific techniques, making treatment difficult to standardize and study empirically. And I think especially as newer therapists, as you are in the very beginning phases of your journey, the idea of learning something that doesn't give you a lot of tools can be a little anxiety inducing. Like, how are we supposed to practice this in class? How are we supposed to use this? Or what if a client asks me one of these like big existential questions and I don't know what to do next? So it can be a bit intimidating as a theory to incorporate into your practice, um, but I think there are ways that this naturally works itself in. That's been my personal experience with the existential theory is that it tends to wor work its way in pretty organically. Um, and there have been times where I've tried to work it in where I thought maybe this would be a good question and it didn't work, but that's where it comes down to relationship with your client, which is one of the tenets of existential theory. So it's one of those things that Maybe you try it out, see how it feels, but the lack of specific techniques um, can make it a bit difficult to actually employ in the therapeutic setting. This brings us to the end of our thought-provoking journey into existential psychotherapy. We'll get a chance to start incorporating this theory into our skills practice during synchronous learning. 
Ending here can feel like a bit of a cliffhanger since there's not specific skills and techniques that you have in mind coming into this skills practice, but start thinking and noticing if you feel kind of led towards these philosophical ideas or asking these types of questions as we do our skills practice together. Please also do check out the additional videos and resources that are available for you on Canvas. There's a video with Irvin Yalom, who is one of the founding fathers of existential psychotherapy. And you'll hear his name again through the course of your studies as he's one of the founding fathers of group therapy. Thanks so much for tuning in and we'll see you in class.